This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. We know that the effects of climate change, floods, drought, fires, sea level rise, and extreme heat have already displaced millions of people around the world, with some UN estimates warning that more than a billion people could be impacted worldwide before the year 2050. Less commonly known, though, is the fact that many people within the United States are already experiencing internal displacement due to climate change, a pattern that is all but certain to continue reshaping the country's economy and society for years to come. On this episode, Commonweal Managing Editor Issa Simon speaks with journalist Jake Biddle about his new book, The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Isa. It's good to see you. Hi, Dominic. It's good to see you, too. So why don't you tell us about this conversation with Jake Biddle? Jake Biddle is a staff writer at Grist who covers climate change. His new book is The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration, which just came out. So despite knowing about the increasing natural disasters from climate change, we often lose track of the people who have been affected when the news crews pack up after a major hurricane or wildfire and go home. But Jake wanted to follow up with those people. Where do they go? Could they rebuild? Should they? What were insurance companies and the federal government doing to help them? The book uses stories of individual families and neighborhoods across the country to explain the larger picture of how homeowners, insurers, and the federal government respond to these crises. It's a book about climate change, but it's also a book about housing and community and how we can take care of each other. Thanks, Issa. And I'm looking forward to the episode. Thanks, Dominic. Well, hi, Jake. Thanks for being on the Commonweal podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So in your book, The Great Displacement, you wrote about communities all around the country, from Louisiana to California to Virginia. You met all kinds of people. What are some of the stories that impacted you the most deeply? So this book project was an attempt to create kind of a snapshot of domestic climate migration in the United States. So I went to a half dozen or so places in the U.S. that had seen recently large hurricanes, large wildfires. They were experiencing extreme drought or where sea level rise was advancing really quickly. And I looked at the long timeline of what happened after these disasters struck people, what happened after people lost their homes, where did they end up? And what do these disasters do not only to the people's lives who get upended by them, but also to the housing markets, the insurance markets in these places? What I found was there's this really chaotic, kind of churning process of displacement and relocation and redisplacement that happens in the most vulnerable parts of the country. Yeah, so I think that there's a few that impacted me most. And the first one is that in North Carolina, I wrote about this community called Lincoln City that was this generations old African-American neighborhood that was perennially prone to flooding. And after a couple big hurricanes, the federal government paid for the community to be destroyed, basically raised, and they gave everyone money to move somewhere else. The after effects of this policy were really shocking for me. For one thing, I was really surprised that, you know, this community still has this pretty robust reunion that's like thousands of people strong. Even after 20 years after the community had been destroyed, hundreds of people who lived there or who never lived there, but are the children of people who lived there, will come back and celebrate what the neighborhood used to be and get back in touch with each other. And I thought that this was really interesting to me because it seemed like the process of being relocated out of that community and the sort of 
the unprecedented kind of coordination that was involved in moving it away, which is something that the government hadn't really done before, bound together people who otherwise might have drifted apart. The other part of it that surprised me was that was just how poorly a lot of people fared after they were given the stipend by the government to move. So you could go back and look at where everyone moved. Where did everyone end up after they took the buyout from Lincoln City, from the government? And a lot of them ended up living pretty close to where they had been before, but in houses that were more valuable. The utility bills were higher. The mortgages for those people who ended up needing to do, to, sorry, take out a new mortgage were more expensive. And a lot of them, it turned out, by the time of the recession, 2008, 2010, a lot of them went into foreclosure and they couldn't keep up with the mortgages from, on the safer, newer houses that the government had paid to move them into. I think that I had kind of had to stop for a second and say, okay, we know that we need to adapt to climate change. We know that there's people in harm's way. But the process of fixing that is, a, is much more complicated and painful than I think people might assume on the face of it. One alternative to buyouts, though it wouldn't work in every community, is climate adaptation. An example you give of this process is in Chesterfield Heights in Norfolk, Virginia. Can you explain that program? Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of the other side of the coin, and it's, it's comparatively really new, right? So FEMA's only been subsidizing these buyouts in a coordinated way for a couple decades. And only really in during the Obama administration did the federal government first allocate serious money toward specific climate adaptation, basically design projects. And I think that the one in Norfolk, it's a good example of this because it runs the gamut of all kinds of different things. This is a, a riverside neighborhood in, in a city that's experiencing a lot of sea level rise and where water kind of funnels back up in the neighborhood and at high tide, a lot of the rivers flood. So... There's a giant berm now at the front of the neighborhood that sort of stops water from sloshing over. They also expanded and remodeled the drainage system, the storm drain system to make it a little bit better. They also created these kind of uh, like basically artificial tidal estuaries and wetlands that can soak up water. You know, concrete's an impervious surface, so water that comes in concrete tends and asphalt tends to move around a lot. But grass is really good at absorbing water. So they created these sort of breakwaters, which have these like absorbent grasses in them. And then they created this big park, which is designed to flood. It can serve as a natural bowl for collecting water. So they took the neighborhood, which was like perennially flooded. It was perpetually flooding on high tide days. And they've done basically everything they could with a hundred or so million dollars to make it seriously resilient for the next 30 years. And it really required retrofitting almost every part of the neighborhood's infrastructure. This is really expensive to do. But it's probably bought the neighborhood upwards of 50 years. This is a neighborhood where property values were falling or were about to fall because the flood nuisance was so significant. And now the project's not done yet. But once it is done, you would think most of these people will not have such serious issues anymore, which is a great thing. And it's a sort of good lesson. Like, you can buy this. You can buy this. You can buy time, but it's very expensive. That reminds me of the analogy that you use in that chapter of the rising seawater and the community being like a stick of dynamite with a long fuse. So this extended the fuse, but the fuse is burning low on all of these coastal communities as the sea level rise begins to affect them in this kind of slow motion emergency. So can you describe that metaphor and what are the effects we'd be looking at? Yeah. So the metaphor was intended to depict like the process of people buying and selling homes repeatedly in areas where there's going to be future sea level rise, but where the market hasn't yet 
processed or absorbed the fact that one day these homes are going to be much less valuable than they are. So I can buy a home in Norfolk for $400,000 and I can probably sell it for just as much, if not more in three years, even though in 30 years, that home is going to be, if not underwater, at least almost impossible to get your money's worth out of because the streets will be constantly flooded. Other homes around it will be flooded. People might not live there to the same extent anymore, or maybe, you know, at a big storm, it'll all get blown away. Right now, the market still hasn't absorbed that fact. So the stick of dynamite is the value of the home. And when the when dynamite blows up, the home's value is going to fall, even independent of a flood actually touching the home. And that's what I was trying to get at is like, in addition to the number of properties that will be destroyed by climate disasters, even more of them will just simply lose value because the places that they're in will become so much more prone to flooding. And because the market will start to shy away from those places, it's much less desirable to live in. And if thousands of people lose their home to disasters every year, many more thousands will just suddenly be left holding the bag for a mortgage that is figuratively speaking underwater. It's worth less than the value when you bought it. And that's a really bad thing for middle-class families. I kept on thinking about the argument that some people who live in places that are less vulnerable make, which is that everybody else should just move, just face the facts and get out of the Florida Keys or wherever is most in danger. But when I was reading the book, I kept thinking, well, who are they going to sell their houses to? Who's going to buy them? Aquaman? Yeah, so, right. <laughs> I think also, though, like in addition to the question of how do you make whole the people who are going to have to leave and who would who would help them recoup the value of the homes that they would need to sell. There's also just a question of like self-determination here that I think you can't really paper over, which is we also don't really have, it's hard to know who would have the authority to tell people to leave and what steps you could take in any kind of just way to enforce that. And I think after Hurricane Katrina, I think it was Dennis Hastert, the Speaker of the House at the time, got on the floor of the House and said, we should not rebuild New Orleans. You know, people should not be living there. And this is just in that, you hear versions of this all the time, but I think that version of it really drives home. This is a really vile thing to say. And it was just a racist thing to say. But you hear that all the time. It's like, why do they live there? Why do they live there? And that we can't really say you must leave. You shouldn't be living there. What we can do is make it easier for people who want to leave to leave and try to find a way to make whole the people who are stuck and protect for as long as we can, or as many places as we think we can afford to. But telling people you've got to go is it always in this country leads to really awful outcomes. And so you have to be careful about that. Yeah. And I, well, I felt like that was a bit of a tension that sort of ran through the whole book was how heartbreaking it would be. You would describe a place and the culture of the place. And then there would also be the sort of pragmatic fact, for example, in Poinashen, Louisiana, where the land is literally washing away. It was so, I think, well done in the book, how you didn't let that kind of fact, which can seem so cold, get in the way of the stories. We were really able to empathize with people in those communities. How did you balance that tension? That's a really good question. It was really hard to write those narratives without including parts of why people loved the places that they were and why people wanted to stay there and what it was that they treasured about those places. And I think sometimes that ended up taking over. And I had to go back later and say, well, why was I there? <laughs> and the answer is, 
that these places are all in pretty serious trouble. I think I would go to a place and not, I don't think fall in love. You know, you would sort of see the place from inside it and you would understand why people treasured it so much. And you would, people were very optimistic. A lot of people who were still in these places are dead set on staying. Then you drink that Kool-Aid a little bit, which is necessary, I think, to tell the story. But then when I came back and finished writing the book, I would have to buttress the stuff with like fact, the recount, the damage that was caused. But you have to make it clear again to the reader, no amount of optimism in many of these cases is going to be sufficient to stop people from losing their homes. A lot of people. So yeah, difficult balance to strike. I don't really know whether I did it well, but it definitely is hard not to see the places as people see them. I think that the town Pointishen in Louisiana that you gestured to was is a pretty it's a pretty good case of this where like for generations now because of erosion people have steadily been less and less able to do the things that their parents did to sustain themselves so I would wrote about this family and five generations ago they were self-sufficient they they raised oysters they caught shrimp and basically in nets outside their house windows. It was like that easy. They caught nutria. They sold the pelts. That became impossible. So they had to switch to just inshore shrimping on motorboats. And that became impossible. So they had to switch to offshore shrimping on these big boats that require a lot more upfront capital to buy. And that became impossible. So the next generation, you mostly worked in oil and gas. And then that's very volatile work. And so then the last and the most recent generation, the youngest guy left, moved to Tucson to start a, a video game company. And I think it's just like the succession of tradition and the changes in traditions there were really revealing because it's there loves that community so much. I and mean, there's no place like it in the world. Even places five or 10 miles away have very different traditions, very different, not different cuisine, but different dishes, certainly. They even speak a little differently because there's been so much productive isolation and self-sufficiency there for a long time. And knowing that tradition still existed while at the same time, the economic dictates of the Society have changed so much, so much so that there's literally no jobs for the younger generation to take. They have to just go somewhere else. That tension was a really, just sit with that one for a really long time. We'll have more of Issa Simon's conversation with Jake Biddle in a minute. I'm Ellen Koenig, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast possible. Some of the places where there are jobs and where there have been huge construction and population booms are also very vulnerable. Cities like Phoenix, Miami, and Dallas will all be subject to increasing heat, which you write will become the largest driver of voluntary migration in the coming decades. And Phoenix and other desert southwest cities will face terrible water scarcity problems. Why aren't people accounting for these issues? So here's the thing. I think the interesting thing about heat, there's two interesting things. One is that there are pretty defined thresholds above which it becomes difficult for human beings to tolerate. It's not about how much rain do you like or how much are you willing to live in a place that's prone to hurricanes or wildfire. At a certain point, the human body can't sustain life once it gets hot enough and once there's like the right combination of heat and humidity. And the second thing about it is that it's virtually a certainty. Unlike 
hurricanes where it's the probability that one town gets hit by a hurricane or a given year is always low just because they're not, it's not like there's one every day. But he, by 50 years from now, you know, assuming that the current pace of global warming continues, places like Tucson will see nigh-lethal heat every summer for a lot of the summer. And that is what I mean when I say it's voluntary migration, because at a certain point, you're trying to look out for your own survival, but people will make the choice to leave, even though there's no definite economic necessity of doing so, which is like not really the case I found for other kinds of disasters. So, and because heat is, it happens everywhere, you know, the impacts in terms of migration, are, you don't really see them yet because the heat is not, I mean, it's pretty bad, but it's not that bad that often right now. But that threshold could be crossed in a lot of these places over the next 30 years. And at that point, you're going to see a very definitive, I think, shift in people's attitudes where they see these places as it's not maybe once every few years we get a really hot one. It's oh, once every year, I, it's not safe to go outside at all. And that is, that's a really powerful psychological motivator in a way that a lot of the other ones, because the hurricane's so infrequent, a wildfire is so infrequent, it's not, it doesn't have quite the same psychological force for people as heat. And we're not there yet, but I think that just looking at a map, looking at a thermometer and looking at a calendar, you can see that eventually those cities can't, won't continue to stay at the size that are, they would at any rate won't continue to grow anymore because people won't be able to tolerate it. The other thing that could cause not so much out migration, but a slowdown in the growth of places that, of some of the biggest cities in the United States is water scarcity, which is now like a big bugaboo of mine in my reporting at, at Grist. And it's hard for some people to believe this because there's no evidence of it on the surface right now. But the fundamentals are pretty clear that over the next 10 to 20 years, a lot of the fastest growing cities in the West will not have the water to continue to grow. It's not that the tap's going to be shut off, but the water's not sufficient to keep growing. From the perspective of real estate, though, and from the perspective of many people who live on the suburban fringes of these cities, there's not that much difference between those two things because future property value increases are contingent on continued growth. And the profits of the home builders and the developers are contingent on continued growth. So once you say you can't build any more, you're setting a domino effect in motion. In a place like Phoenix, St. George, Utah, one of the fastest growing metros in the entire country, there's very little excess water. Las Vegas, to a certain extent, though they've done a really good job with water conservation. Once you say that, once you set that domino in motion, you're going to knock over a whole other bunch of dominoes that are going to really force like a revaluation of property in those places. When property values tumble or quiver or fall, that could lead to like a change in the long-term trajectory of those cities. But as more people right now who aren't taking that into account are flooding into these areas, is there anything that the government or the private market should do to try and discourage people from moving in? It's hard to know what mechanism the government could even use to stop someone from making a voluntary movement from, say, Buffalo to Phoenix. However, I think the problems with inducing people to move elsewhere are much less intractable. Like the government and private companies, right, could incentivize their workers to move to one place rather than another. This would require the federal government to pick winners and losers over the next decade. They already do. That's number one. Number two, like 
their government, you could argue the government has a responsibility to do this, right? If you want to do a national climate adaptation strategy, there's no sense in trying to induce people to move to Phoenix. But you could make a strong argument that there is sense in trying to induce people to move to, say, Cincinnati, which is like, A, it's built to house about twice the number of people that it does now. B, it's incredibly resilient to climate change compared to some other cities. Again, like discouraging people, it's, it's hard to know, like, at what point the government could even get involved, right? Because they'll get there by the time you know that they're going. But opening up in like incentives, like the way that the state of Oklahoma, Vermont, I think has done this where they think, hey, we want to revitalize our society. Why don't you come live here and we'll give you a little cash stipend to come here. There's no reason why we can't target that kind of stuff for climate change and why the government couldn't get involved in that. Although it could be controversial, but at a certain point you weigh benefits and costs, you think, well, maybe we get a little bit of blowback, but it's probably worth thinking about. One thing that the government could certainly do is it seems like there are some places where the the private market is, for example, not required to disclose things like flood history or in rebuilding houses, not required to rebuild places that have burned down with any kind of more stringent fire standards. And so I think that there's there are probably some opportunities to tighten up some regulations or introduce new regulations that would at least minimize the risk for maybe new or returning homeowners who they're trying to mitigate their own risk. But- oh, definitely. Yeah. I think the question is like, are there good ways to pass on the cost of adaptation and the cost of to pass on the potential future costs of these disasters, are there good ways to pass these costs on to homeowners, home builders, developers, without burdening them extensively? And so after Hurricane Andrew in 1992, Florida, which is where I'm from, the state overhauled this building codes. And it said, if you want to build a building in South Florida, you have to make sure that it's, it can withstand a Category 5 hurricane, which, believe it or not, is possible to do. You can build a home that is pretty much capable of withstanding winds of that strength. And most of the new homes that were built after 1992, or I guess it took effect in 2000, actually, they withstood Hurricane Ian, the 150 mile an hour winds from the storm that hit in October. The question is like, who bore the cost of building more resilient homes? And that was like the builders had to build more expensive homes. Those costs got passed on to the homeowners and the homeowners were willing to pay them because they wanted to live in Florida. And so you could argue that this was like, a pretty big success. Yes, things cost more, but not to an extent that necessarily bankrupted millions of people. And the same thing is true with the um, flood disclosures, though, where it's like, we could make a law that says, if you're selling your home, you must inform the potential buyer about the flood history and the flood risk. And we can do that. And many people will take a cut on the amount that their homes sell for. Because once they bring someone in for a tour and they say, by the way, it's flooded, you know, you're knocking X number of thousand dollars off the price. Again, that's a cost that you could argue people are capable of bearing and that they should be bearing. And we could do that. But it's just a matter of making sure that you understand who holds the bag for any given policy or lack of intervention and then trying to figure out like what the best way is. I'm far from convinced that I know all those answers, but like even acknowledging that, that we're playing that game would be really good, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. Circling back to the question of responsibility and who holds the bag and also, as you put it, what do we owe one another? That kind of brings me around to this ideal that you propose at the end of the book, which is that everyone deserves safe housing before 
and after natural disasters, whether or not they own property or have insurance. And this is radical, you say, because it undermines the belief in individual responsibility that has been so foundational to the American psyche. Can you talk a little bit about why individual responsibility is insufficient in the face of the climate crisis? Yeah, I think that this is something that really, I don't know, it sounds like an like a political or like philosophical argument, which it is. But I think that also it was brought home for me in kind of an emotional way where I would speak to people who were, they were the image of middle-class upward mobility and stability in the United States. They had saved up to buy a home in a place like Houston. They had done their research. They looked into it. It didn't seem like it was prone to flooding. There's no public documentation that it had ever flooded. And they bought it and they paid their mortgage and they did their job. They raised their kids. And then all of a sudden they lost everything because there was a big flood. And it turned out that the developer had ignored some flood maps, you know, 50 years earlier when they had built it. And there's no way anyone could have known that. Perhaps even the developer who didn't really realize how prone to flooding this river was going to be thanks to increased precipitation. These people did everything right, right? And they are the image of the American upwardly mobile, middle-class, individually responsible person. Like this is a figurehead in our politics on both sides of the aisle. It's like the they were average Joe, the good guy. And there was nothing they could have done to prevent this from happening. I think that really has to, unless you're going to consider it an act of God, right? Like a test, you know, like what Job endured. You have to think, surely... That's where we need the state to come in and help those people get back on their feet. Once you say that, then you open yourself up to a whole world of policy and spending and charity and largesse on the part of the government that could sort of help people have a better grip on shelter and feel safer where they are. And then it's hard to say, well, we should only do this for people who've experienced natural disasters because as you pointed to, the financial impacts of climate change and of pre-existing forms of discrimination, et cetera, are pervasive. And everyone's basically experienced some form of them. So those people should get assistance too, right? So I just think that using that the stories of the people who've experienced these disasters kind of point to this need to look beyond like housing as something that you work for and afford and keep by through your own fiscal rectitude and your own financial integrity and good decisions. Like we just can't think of it that way because that's not what it will be over the next hundred years as like disasters get more intense and more and more people are going to have this thing where I did everything right. I never saw this coming. Who's going to help me now? There's no other answer to that except for the U.S. federal government, which has an enormous amount of money and an enormous amount of latitude to spend it. Like If that's not the answer, I really don't know what is. And then to make it even more complicated, there are other parts of the world that are experiencing these disasters without any kind of FEMA or any kind of policy in their own countries that can help them deal with it. We know that the United States is already dealing with an influx of refugees. And so I appreciated how you brought in the ideal to include them. Can you describe the international scope of the problem? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an unfortunate potential for like international climate migrants to become this kind of terrifying, like xenophobic boogeyman for the right, where you have these studies that come out that say, oh, 500 million people could be displaced by the end of the century from all over the world and probably mostly try to go to 
first world countries. I think the scarier fact to me, the actually scary fact is that most migration is internal. Like most displacement of all kinds is domestic. And in many countries around the world, like this is advancing at a much, much faster pace than it is in the United States. Literally a third of Pakistan was underwater last year. Like not, it's not an exaggeration at all. But I think that in certain cases, like in Guatemala, the Northern Triangle, like people don't really have any other option except to try to come to the United States. And there's an element in the book of let's get our house in order here because we don't do a good job with internally displaced migrants in the United States. But I think once you acknowledge that you have a responsibility to those people, it's really hard to say we don't have a responsibility to people from other countries. I think like the richer countries of the world, which are responsible for climate change, bear an enormous amount of responsibility to the people who are displaced by drought, you know, or famine in other parts of the world. The issue is our politics are so far away from being able to grapple with this, right? That presently, if more people come to the US because of climate change, it gets routed through the immigration debate, which is so politically toxic and where there's been no progress that the outlook there seems really grim to me because it's hard to imagine how the fact that climate change is happening and is bad would break the logjam in immigration politics. I just don't know if that's going to be the difference maker, even though it's real and it's devastating. (laughs) But at the same time, it's really important to think of people like in Houston who lose their homes as being on a continuum with people from Guatemala who travel hundreds and hundreds of miles to come to the United States. Like the processes of destabilization are not that different. It's just that there's a border in between in one case and there's five miles in another case. The solutions to these things might not be all that different from each other. You know, the end solution of what constitutes the happy ending for those people, it looks basically the same in both cases. Somewhere that's resilient, it's safe from disasters and where it's sheltered more or less affordable. And once you say, okay, that's what we want, I think you can tell the rest of the story of how it ends. And it looks like a pretty large state-sponsored transfer of wealth. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. Thank you for talking to us and thank you for writing such a wonderful and important book. Thanks so much. Jake Biddle's new book is The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.